we've been connected at Ignite at Urban Junction um, with the underground for the past uh, five or six years. We've gone to visit their church and experienced uh, the stories, the lives that they've touched, um, the things that they've been doing, the values they hold closely, and they've been over to visit us too. So we've been delighted to continue our, our relationship and friendship, and we're really happy that you can come and share with us today. So I think you're going to really um, gain a lot from this. Uh, so I'd like to welcome Brian. If it's okay, I will pray for you as we... You want to sit? You're keeping no, the couch? No, no, no. My, my drink needs a spot. Oh, okay. Yeah. Brian loves Coke. Okay, let me pray. God, we thank you for your servant, Brian. We thank you that he answered that call that you put in his life. Lord, that you filled him with your spirit, and that's enabled him to do extraordinary things for you in your name. But God, we pray for him as he speaks with us this morning. May he bear witness to you, an almighty God, who can do extraordinary things to ordinary people. Um, fill him with your spirit now, and help us to hear and to respond in our hearts, um, to be committed to you in all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Song, we good. Um, I just want to apologize in advance for anything I say or the way I say it. That's that's too American. Uh, in fact, already just standing on this stage, ten feet above us all, just seems so wrong, so inappropriate. Um, but I am who I am, and I the only way I know to come to you is um, authentically. <clears throat> so please forgive me and be patient with me. Also, Irish culture is a bit strange uh, for me, and it's taking me a little getting used to. Uh, Lucy said she has a cat named Bob. You name your cats Bob here? Those, that's a person, that's a, that's a human name. We don't, we don't name our animals like people names. We, we use like Frisky or Whiskers or something like that for cats. It's strange. Also, Lawrence got up here and talked about lighting a flame and then immediately Belinda gave us fire instructions and I just thought, <laughs> what exactly is happening? Is this a literal culture? I, I'm just still trying to figure it out. Also, you have a thing called wet rain. I, I'm, I'm a, is, that, is, that, is there some other kind of rain? This is very confusing. You wear jumpers, ju jumpers, which I don't, I, I still, I'm not sure where that comes from. Is that like a jacket? Is that what that is? Like a sweater? What is that? A jumper? It's a jumper. It's a sweater. Uh, anyway, I don't understand where that comes from. Jump, you, do you jump around in it, Simon? Is that what you, no? Also, apparently, and again, it's, take, it's taking me a minute to learn this, but if you haven't seen a friend for some time and you truly love them and you've missed them, apparently the proper thing to do is to insult them. <laughs> and that's called slagging. That's called slagging. Anyway, it's taking some learning. Uh, but there, there, is, there is something quite beautiful about your, this place and your people. 
it's something that's, um, I don't know, it's, it's romancing me about your, the expression of your faith in the church here. And even just my small sampling of your leaders has been beautiful and enriching. And, and try not to be distracted by the transformers who are out there, uh, I don't know, tearing down buildings or something. So, um, anyway, I'm, 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 I'm both impressed and amazed at who you are and, and who God is making you to be. And if I can, for a few minutes, possibly speak into that, I would love to. Uh, our task today is to try to reimagine mission in your context. And so for me, I can tell you a little bit of my story. In 2006, uh, having been a missionary engaged both in the university world, but also in, in living in the inner city for all of my adult life, living in the highest crime neighborhood in my city, choosing to do that, uh, living in community with other people to do mission, in 2006, about 2006, I just had enough of the church. I could not go to another church service. Um, I, I won't ask for a show of hands who's ever felt that way, uh, but some of, you are the, some of you are the pastor of the church, and you're like, I don't want to come to my own church sometimes. Uh, I just felt like I couldn't mm -hmm. do it anymore. I, I thought if I sit in another Sermon. If I, if I have to sit through another... We were talking last night, some, some of the, the, the Methodist church leaders, we were talking about last night about this, this consumer uh, uh, you know, enterprise, this consumer exchange that somehow we're, we're led to believe the church is about, about creating some sort of product that is bought and sold. And the truth is the product isn't even that good. You know, it's, 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 it's like a bad cup of coffee and you're a coffee shop. Sean, Sean, you know, that's not, you're not going to get anywhere with a bad cup of coffee if you're a coffee shop, right? So if you're trying to do a show and it's a consumer thing, I just couldn't do it anymore. The way money was used, the, the irrelevance of the whole thing, it just felt like there was a complete dissonance and disconnect between my life as a missionary and as, 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 as what I thought was a fully surrendered follower of Jesus. It just, I couldn't do it anymore. I actually felt like um, if, if, I, if I keep doing this, if I keep showing up here, it's going to harm my relationship with God. It's a strange place to be. Also, I was very critical. So I, I would, we would go and we would leave and then I would, just, I would just complain or be frustrated. And I realized that was toxic even for my own soul. It wasn't helping anyone. You know? It wasn't mature either. So, so in my own immaturity and, and in this strange exchange of something I didn't want that I felt like I had to do, it's like bare minimum I, I have to show up at this thing. But at some point, you realize you're a, grown, you're a grown man or a grown woman, and you actually don't have to do anything, in point of fact. You, could, you, you go where you want to. No one was forcing me to do that. And something happens, I think, something very liberating happens in that moment where you realize you are responsible for your own life, actually. Um, you, you have to answer to God for the, the way that you've used your own life. And maybe if there was a different version of church or a different expression of church or something that more 
was, was consistent with, with, with our community's reading of the scriptures or whatever, then make it. Then go and make it. Go be it. And so there was a kind of liberation. That liberation took us uh, eventually to go to the, to the developing world. I, I just had this idea that, that, that if we're going to rethink or reshape the church, not just for mission, but for the poor, for the margins, if we actually... Because, of course, the, the American church in particular is, is, is uh, so um, self-centered, if I could say it that way. It's, if, if, if American culture is individualized, the American church is that uh, exponential individualized. And this idea of, of a church for the world, it just, it just was foreign to us. So we thought, okay, we have, to, we have to find a different context to learn, some other people to submit to. So we, through prayer and, and a lot of thinking and trips and planning and so on, we, we ended up spending close to a year in uh, Metro Manila, Philippines. And, and our, our kind of core leadership team, which is nine adults and our ten children, we spent uh, a good portion of our, of our time working in the slums, living and working in, in the slums of Metro Manila, and then at night sneaking away to design what is now uh, this organization which I'm a part of and lead called the Underground Network. And it really is just a, <laughs> I don't know, it's an attempt to, to reimagine the church if it were to prioritize mission. Something really healing began to happen to me. I, I Not only did, did, were we able to begin to see something truly unique and, and an alternative, an ecclesiological alternative, but I started to really love the church again, in all of its forms, actually. In our struggle to be something, that God has always wanted us to be. I can remember walking through, uh, I, I remember the, the first time I was ever in Bangkok, Thailand. And if you've ever been there, especially there's, there's these parts of the city, sort of the red light district. And I can remember walking uh, through the red light district of Thailand by myself one evening. And, and as you walk down, there's these men that stand outside of these clubs. And inside are, are, are young women, girls, little girls, who are for sale for sexual consumption and these men who stand outside as the as the the mediators between this 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 horror and they try to they try to grab you they try to pull you in you see and i don't know that i've ever been so angry in my life um I mean, on the one hand, I, I, was, I, was so, I was so ready for violence. I thought the next one of these guys that puts his hands on me, I'm going to just break his teeth. And yet at the same time, feeling strangely connected to God. Actually, it was almost like a spiritual experience for me. And in that moment, uh, discovering something about the pathos of God. Coming, coming face to face with the, the fury of God, if you will. His furious love for those girls in those clubs with the black light shining on them. His furious love, in fact, for those men. He 
furious love for that city, his furious love for me. I can remember, I can remember, you know, there, there, there are these experiences that shape us when we're very, very young. And sometimes, you know, I'm getting older, so when you get older, you have a bit of, uh, you know, encouragement to think about these things which shape us. I can remember being maybe seven or eight years old, and there was this, right down the street, I lived in a kind of a suburban neighborhood, and down the street from me were these three boys that were about my age. My best friend, whose name was Matt, lived in this one house, and then on the one side of him lived a kid named Chris, and on the other side, a kid called Chris. So there was the two Chrises that lived uh, uh, both sides of Matt's house, and one day I, we were playing, we were playing in Matt's yard, and I, I, I probably, I think I was seven, maybe eight years old, and, and, and the, the, the older Chris came out of his house, and these older boys come, come rushing up on their bicycles, they, we, so we were really young, Chris might have been nine, he might have been a year older than us, but these like 14 year old boys, something, they look like giants, you know, they, they come riding up on their bikes, they throw down their bikes, they, they run over to this boy, Chris, in his front yard, and they just start beating him. Fists, kicking. He goes down into a ball, like a little fetal ball, and they just start wailing on this kid. And I can remember standing there with my friend, Matt, and I just, I was totally paralyzed. I mean, I, I actually remember my body freezing. I was scared, but I was also in shock. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know that there was a thing you could do. I was just totally lost in this moment. Now, across the street from those boys lived a, lived a kid named Jimmy. And Jimmy, his father was always home, and we never understood... Jimmy's father was a little strange, and, he, and we never, he was always working on a car or just outside smoking a cigarette. We never understood, what does Jimmy's dad do? No one, no one really knew, but he was always there. And on this day, Jimmy's dad was out in his driveway like he always was. And he sees this too, this beatdown. And... He, he starts running towards this, this violence. I'll never forget what he said. He said, do you use the word rumble? He said, do you want to rumble? Is that, is that a word? We, we don't really say that in, anymore. Uh, that's kind of a... Is that an old... For us, I would have been like, man, that, that dude is old. You know? He said, do you want to rumble? You want to rumble? And these, these, these 13, 14-year-old boys, I don't know if they understood the word, what the word rumble <laughs> meant, but they knew what he meant. They knew what he was there for. And those, he ran those boys off. They got on their bikes and they started running and he took off. I think he was wheezing a little bit from all the cigarettes, but he, he took off running after them. That was the greatest thing I had ever seen in my young life. It still today is one of the greatest things I've ever witnessed. Something about that moment 
shaped me. Something about that moment is, is it echoes into the, the, the future of my life, of what I think it means to be a good man, of what I think it means to be a Christian, of what it was in the end that drew me to Jesus when I saw him at work uh, fighting for the poor, you see. Concerned for the weakest in the world. Taking his great power, his, his, his extraordinary strength and saying, no, I'm going I'm to apply this for the sake of those who cannot fight for themselves or, or those who are somehow being put down or oppressed or harmed. It was in the end what, what, what first drew me to Jesus, that kind of power, that kind of strength. It's beautiful and it's important. I still think this is a picture of the church which is present in the pain of the world, as engaged as Jimmy's dad was, as brave, really, willing to step in. And it's in contrast to these weak little boys that stood there not knowing what to do, stood there paralyzed, on the one hand acknowledging that something terrible is happening, but on the other hand thinking, but what can I do? It's a story about weakness and strength. It's a story about about the church, actually. It's a story about us. Paul Tillich said, The strange work of love is to destroy that which is not love. There is a kind of violence that love does to the world, which is to destroy all that which is not love. And after all our advancements, still a majority of the human race is in some combination of is, is some combination of poor, broken, or lonely. And surely that matters to God. That little boy being beaten must matter to the heart of God. It has to. There are still people all over the world, I assume here too, who cannot get jobs, who cannot get educated properly, which leads to jobs, who cannot get health care, who don't have access to healthy food or water, human beings with the basic dignity that God has given them, that are victims of crimes so gruesome you can barely consider it. Jimmy's dad stepped in. Surely we should step in. Women and children are bought and sold like property. That's slavery, guys. Surely we should step in. Illicit drugs have ravaged us for generations, and every good thing in this world seems to be twisted into some kind of addiction. And so fathers and mothers are stolen from their children by these addictions. Surely we should step in. Violence is literally everywhere. Murder, rape, theft, threats, fear seems to be the one thing that all human beings have in common. Without a sense of bodily safety, how can we live or learn or love or build anything? Surely we should step in. And all these evils have taken fathers and mothers from their children, so we have thousands of children orphaned, destined to know the world as lonely. Surely we should step in. We're watching a world mental health crisis like nothing has ever in human history. Rates of depression, suicide, clinical disorders are epidemic. Surely we should step in. 
You want to know what the church is? What it's supposed to be? You want to know what the church does? We do all of those. We fight all of those fights. We step in. And more. The people of God are called to get in to the fight. I don't want to be someone that just stands and watches or covers my eyes or lives in fear. And I've come over time to believe in the possibility of a formation of a life and of a church that brings healing and wholeness and justice and joy to the poor. Not just the materially poor, but also those who suffer under the deepest possible poverty, which is human loneliness. And, and, and the deepest kind of loneliness is to be alienated from God. To not know Him. To not understand that He is their true Father, that He loves them enough to die for them. I came to understand that this is what theologians call the Missio Dei. Uh, this, is, this is a staggering idea. That God actually has something to do in the world. God is actually trying to do something, to accomplish something in the world. Oh, well, and then those of us that say, well, we, we belong to you. We, we are your people. We are your church. We are your hands. We are your feet. We say that. We sing that. Each week in our churches, we take those elements, the body and the blood, and we say, we, we are a part of your body. We, we take into ourselves your body. And yet, if we, cannot, if we will not address those things, if we will not engage, if we will not move beyond those walls and say, okay, that fight is my fight because that fight is his fight. I'm just not sure we can call ourselves the church. Look, God is not disengaged from the struggles of this city, from the struggles of this, this island, from the struggles of this world. He is not disengaged. He's, he's in it, fully in it, wherever there is pain, wherever there is hunger, wherever there is heartache. He's right there, right there in the midst of that. Are we? Are we? That's the question. That's the only question for the church. Are we there? And if we will be, here's the the remarkable thing, if we will be, if we'll step into that space, not only will we find some kind of uh, uh, significance, not only will we see our hands and our uh, our mouths do do extraordinary things, even see the supernatural, not only will that happen, but but we ourselves will come in contact with with the presence of Jesus. There's a craving for intimacy with God that we all have, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure we can find it outside of mission. In the end, we only have this one life. And of all the things that a person can do with their life, the most noble, the most beautiful, the most fulfilling, the most eternal, and perhaps the most difficult, is to say yes to God's mission in the world in some way. To pick some fight with the devil. Uh, For us, it has meant uh, a kind of a renewal or a reawakening of the idea of calling, personal calling. 
Because, of course, uh, I'd like to be, I'd like to fight everyone, uh, but, but uh, I, I, you know, I can't, I shouldn't. We are just one person. We just have the one life to play in the hand. So what is it that we're called to do? And, and calling is a, is a kind of beautiful and profound idea. Because the, 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 the concept of calling has to do with hearing something, right? It's the, 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 the biblical idea of vocation that I've heard. So on the one level, it's very personal, you see. To hear God call you means a couple of things, profound things. The first thing that it means is that He knows you, actually. You can't be called unless you're known. So He has to know your name, know you by name. And to say that we believe that God has called us or can call us or does call us means that He knows us by name. I have kids. I have six kids. Uh, and that's a lot. That's probably too many. I'm going to say that's one too many. Uh, <laughs> I might tell you why later, but uh, it's, 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 it's a lot. And, and, so, and also, I don't know if all dads are like this. I don't know if Irish dads are like this. But at some point, if you have this many kids, at some point, you don't want to get up and go look for your kids. You, if you need them, what do you do? You, you, just, you just shout. That's what you do. You just call. So wherever I am in my house, if I need one of my kids, uh, it's understood that all I have to do is just be loud. I just have to call out their name. Now, this is an interesting dynamic because, uh, uh, I, is it this, tell me if it's this way in Ireland. If there, there are multiple kids in the family and dad is calling out for uh, uh, one of the kids and, and a different kid hears that, but they don't. Does that kid have a responsibility, yes or no? <laughs> Do they? Because the, the way it works is if I say, if I say, Noah, come here, and, and a different one, Luke, he hears that, then he, he understands it is his job to pass that on, right? He understands. He understands he is in just as much trouble, <laughs> if not more trouble, if he does not go and tell Noah. And here's the thing. Uh, uh, it's almost always the same. When I was a kid, also when my kids, it's always the same. You have to tell the other sibling, you have to, you have to say this to them. You have to say some version of this. Dad wants you. Dad's calling you. Now, mostly my kids, they, they get excited because they think they're in trouble. You know, that's their, that's their, and they like that. They like to see each other get in trouble. So they, <laughs> they have some sort of vindictive streak in them to see some sadistic side of them. So, Dad wants you. Dad wants you. Dad wants you. And I'm going to watch. You know, I'm going to stand back and watch. <laughs> but that's that's beautiful too. Listen, to, to be called, to hear your name called by the Father, the first implication of that is that He knows you. The second implication is that He wants you. He wants you. Now, when, when the kid comes down the stairs, maybe they're scared, or maybe they're not, but they understand, and then they come up to me, they say, Dad, you wanted me? You called me? I did. So the first thing to establish in calling is that we have a relationship, this one and I. This is my son, this is my daughter, and I am your father. The first implication of calling is intimacy. It's intimacy. 
Of course, the second is purpose. I, I have something for you to do, you see. Go mow the yard or go, go, go uh, uh, get some, help your mom or something like that. There, there's something for you to do. So the second implication of calling is purpose, intimacy and purpose. Now, most of us, at least when we think, when we talk about calling, we talk about it in terms of purpose. I have a calling to be a teacher. I have a calling to be a doctor something like that. It's this idea of like vocation means what I do with my life, the purpose of my life. But the first implication is just as important. That we're known, that you're wanted. And every single person in your church, every single person in your community, every single person in the ministry of which you are a part is wanted by God. And they have to know that. And they're wanted for something. Yes, there are assignments that God gives us in the world to say, go pick that fight, go help that person, go build this thing, go create something in the world for me. With my blessing. And in a very real sense, we go as ambassadors with his presence accompanying us into that thing. I I come in the name of the Lord. There's nothing like that. Human beings human beings are 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 built for significance. We flounder in our insignificance because we have not heard the voice of God, experienced that intimacy, and walking as sent people into the world. But we were meant to. And I think this has something to do with a loss of hope, you see. If... If we don't know that we are called, if we have not experienced some fresh sense of calling in our life, I have been sent by God to do this as best I know how, imperfectly. One of the, the repercussions of that is a loss of hope. Now, as I prayed for you in the last couple of weeks, for you, this is what I feel most compelled to say to you. It's something that you need from God, which has, the word for me to you is something about hope. To rekindle it in your hearts, to rekindle it in your churches, to rekindle it in your communities. Hope for ourselves, actually, starting just with you. That you can be more than you are. That our lives are supposed to matter, can matter. And can leave some kind of lasting mark upon the world. Hope for our churches. What they can be, what they should be. Hope for the world. That death and alienation and violence and lust and evil do not have to win, should not win. Hope is a beautiful word. The etymology, hope comes from two other concepts. This, if you sort of look at where that word comes from, it comes from two other concepts. One is confidence and the other is desire. And these possibly are our two defects. To lack confidence in, in, in God but also in yourself as a part of the body of Christ, as a person who is indwelled with the Spirit of God. 
And maybe, I don't know if it's true, but maybe there is a lack of confidence. You feel like you're not equipped, or you're not capable, or you're not, you're not really called. There is this lie that's propagated called the great man myth that somehow history is shaped by great men. And the truth is, that's not how history works at all, in point of fact, but that's how we tell the story of history. is by choosing singular people as somehow crafting or creating or making history happen. And that's never how history works. History always works with many, many people. If anything, great men and great women are product of their time. This is not, certainly not how the church works. Jesus always chooses ordinary people. And what makes them extraordinary is that they say yes to him. And it's something about desire, something about the fire of God in you, in your church, in your people. To want something from the world. To want God to do something in this place, in this city, in your time, in your generation, in your lifetime. We have to rekindle not just our confidence, but also our desire to want something and to say that you want it. Something extraordinary, something bigger than you, something, there's a modesty uh, uh, that you have which is so, it's so godly, it's so beautiful. And yet, and yet if, you, if you take it too far, and you, you, you begin to mute your own desire for something that's called the kingdom of God. To yearn for it. To, when Jesus said, when his disciples asked him, Lord, how do we pray? How ought we to pray? He said, when you pray, pray your kingdom come. I, we want your kingdom to come. To allow those longings to, to emerge. And in this way, I think hope is the opposite of, of anxiety. Hope is the opposite of anxiety. Anxiety, Soren Kierkegaard said, to, 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 to feel anxiety is, is to stand at, it, it has something to do with freedom. To stand at the edge of your life, the precipice of your life, to look upon the horizon of your life and to feel dizzy. Because it's too much freedom, too much to do, too much that could happen, too much that could go wrong. He calls it the dizziness of freedom. That is anxiety. It produces in us anxiety. I think hope is the opposite. That's my prayer for you, is to be able to look upon the horizon of, of your life, to look upon the horizon of, of, of your church's future, to look upon the horizon of, of, of the church in Ireland. And instead of feeling anxiety about that or shrinking back from it, actually beginning to look at the possibilities in the future and the horizon and say something extraordinary is out there for us. To hope again. To believe in spite of all the things that could go wrong. I know you know that. I know you see all the things that could go wrong. To hope anyway. To have confidence anyway. To allow yourself to desire the kingdom anyway. Anxiety gives us this vertigo. But hope stabilizes us. I mean, Paul said it this way, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. We understand the, the importance of faith in our life with God. We understand the importance of love in our expression in our life with God. But do we, do we cultivate hope? If these are the greatest three things, how are we doing on hope? Reimagining mission will mean re reimagining ourselves. 
Our true identity is not what you say you are. You don't get to define yourself, actually. He defines you. And Jesus called people to drop their nets, and they, they became fishers of men. The Father sent Jesus, and so Jesus sends the Spirit, and the Spirit sends you, sends us. I know I need to finish. I'll say it this way. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. So whoever believes in him would not perish, but live with him eternally. And Jesus so loved the world that he gave his spirit to the world, so that whoever believes in him would find holiness, purpose, and joy in this life. And the spirit so loved the world that he gave us. He gives us to the world. So that whoever believes in our message would find the kingdom of God in the midst of imperfect, ordinary people and life. We are a part of that cosmic chain. Well, at least we should be. You see, you, you, leaders, you are powerful beyond imagining because you represent the church deployed. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. I, he said, I will build my church. We have to to stop thinking of ourselves as the masters of our destiny here. Jesus himself wants to build his church through you. You don't have to build your church. That's a fool's errand anyway. You don't have to... Lure people in. You don't have to recruit people. Let Jesus build his church. You just go. Surrender. Say yes again. And I continue to propose that we flip the focus. We reimagine mission as something uh, that's not done in some faraway land. But it's something that's done by the church. By the people of God. Not by the church as an institution or by professionals, but just by us. Regular, imperfect, normal people. Well, nobody's really normal. That's, that's not true. <coughs> Regular, imperfect, abnormal people. You're all abnormal, perfectly abnormal. And to look at the place where he's put us with eyes of hope again. I mean, Jesus, this is the model that we've been given. Jesus is... Perfection. He, he, he is the incarnate Son of God, and yet He still sends His disciples. He's present on the earth, and in, his, in the height, the zenith of His ministry, He still sends his, 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 his clumsy, inarticulate, foolish disciples out in His name. And what does He do? When He sends out the 10, or when He sends out the 12, and He sends out the 72, what did He do? Did He just sit back in the boat? I don't know. What, what, what was He doing? Was he having just a holiday? Where did he go? But still, he was present in the world, and yet he sent them out. Why? What does that that mean? How is that a paradigm somehow for ministry? Jesus is physically present in the world. If there was ever a leader that said, maybe it's better if I do this. You know, uh, and he doesn't give them the the, the simple jobs, right? Just... uh, Just, all you guys have to do is heal the sick, cast out demons, and preach the kingdom of God has come. That's all. Just do that. Just do those three things. He gives them the the hard stuff, the big stuff, right? And remember when they come back, remember they're processing, they're debriefing the experience. What are they excited about? 
The demons submit to us in your name. That's the thing they could, that, there's no way that's going to happen. And it does happen. And they're pumped. Jesus is empowering them even when he's physically present. He could do it, but he still wants them to do it. Why? Pentecost. We talk about being, Lawrence talked about being in between Ascension and Pentecost. What a profound idea. Pentecost comes, and what does it mean? It means, it means the church is not defined by hierarchy. But it's, it's this democratization somehow of the power of God distributed to the people of God. Every kind of person. Men and women. Young people and old people. Every ethnos. It doesn't matter who you were. There's no one now that is excluded from the prophetic utterance of the kingdom of God coming into the world. That's what Pentecost does. Pentecost shapes the church. You don't get to shape the church. We don't get to say hierarchy is what the church is. People with robes and hats and appropriate titles. That's what makes the church the church. You don't get to decide that. There's nothing wrong with a lovely robe. There's nothing wrong with a nice title. But what should define the church is this, is this distribution, you see, of power. Not just power in some sort of political institutional sense, but power in a spiritual sense. The power has to be returned to the people of God, to the priesthood of all believers. This is what defines the church. How does the, how does, how does the story end? What is, what is the future vision and hope for the church itself, for the people of God, for the universe, for the world, for the whole cosmic story? How does it end? Revelation 4, Revelation 7, you have this incredibly mind-boggling scene where you're finally in the throne room of God. It's what, it's what Daniel envisioned. It's, it's what Zechariah envisioned. Now the dwelling of God is with men. And so there they are in the throne room of God, and it makes perfect sense that the Lamb is, is, is there to take this place, this central place, and he's the only one that's worthy to judge the world. He's the only one that's worthy to open the scroll of judgment and read out what the world needs to hear finally. It's vindication. He's the only one that's worthy because he's the only one that gave his life for the world. He's the one that loved the world, so he's the one that can judge the world. And in that place, it all makes sense because the, the throng is there, the people of God are there, every nation, every tongue, every tribe is there, and they're all worshiping, and they're finally saying, as they should have said all along, you're the one, you're holy, you're, you're perfect. And in that, in that moment of worship, there's this strange, odd part that should not be there, that makes no sense. There's this throne of God at the center, and everyone is worshiping. But then there's these other thrones. Has you ever thought about this? There's these 24 awkward thrones. It's like somebody made a terrible setup error in the eschaton. Who put the 24 other thrones in the throne room of God. This was a terrible oversight on our part. And, and there are people there. This is what's crazy. There are people there with crowns. They have crowns. It's just, nobody else thinks this is weird? Okay, just help me out here. Stay with me. Throne room of God. Finally, everything is right. Finally, the world sees God for who he is. Finally, everyone is worshiping. And there's 24 people like, like us with, with crowns and little thrones. Surrounding the throne room. It's crazy. That's crazy. What's going on? Somehow in the perfection of God, somehow in the character of God, somehow in the, in the, in the, in the fruition of the heart of God and the coming of the kingdom of God, he still has human beings share his glory and his power. He's okay with it. Jesus in his presence in the incarnation... God through his spirit in the launching and the birthing of the church to define what the church would be in our time. And even in the world which is to come, there is a sharing of power. It's part of who God is. 
And it just takes my breath away. And it also makes me think, how crazy are we? How scandalous are we when we want to have human beings that take all the control of the church, to try to control the church, to try to, try to hold the sacramental goods of the church just for ourselves? Just me, I'm the only one. I, I need to finish, so I'll just, I'll just give you one last thought. This, this thing which we are called into, each of us, all of us, every single surrendered believer. It's that big, it's that cosmic, actually. But it's also very, very small. It's as small as one life. Can I show you, uh, Luke, do you have a picture of my, I just want to show you a picture of my family. Um, so, the reason why I'm showing this the Egyptian guy on the end, he's my son-in-law, so, you know, <laughs> married in. Uh, the rest of them are, my wife is, is top right, and the rest of them are my, those are my six kids. I show you this picture because right, right between Monica and I, my wife and I, is Eve. That's my third daughter, or my third child, my second daughter. And she is... Um, wayward, far, far from God. She is a source of great sadness in our lives. If you look at little Eve's body, she's, she's covered with scars all over her body from pain that she has inflicted on herself to deal with the pain that she experienced in her heart. If you know me, and many of you do, you know that this is, this is the greatest source of suffering. And if you have had children, and if any of them have ever suffered or gone astray, you know exactly what I mean. I never, I never really understood the story of the prodigal son from, the, from the Luke 15, from the perspective of the father until Eve. But the other day, I mean, Eve, we never know where she is. She's 19 now. We never know where she is. She could be homeless. Sometimes she is. She's with people that are, that are just toxic for her. We never really know where she is. And the other day, I get a call from two very dear friends, uh, this, a married couple, and they were driving, and they saw her on the side of the road, weeping. So they're driving around our city, and they see my daughter, Alone and weeping. And I want you to imagine a, a, a scenario where they don't stop. I want you to imagine them coming back to me the next time they see me, the next time they come into my presence and, and saying, hey, we saw your daughter and we did not stop. We saw her in obvious pain. We saw her uh, 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 in some sort of great need. And we didn't care, actually. Of course, they did stop because they are my friends. Of course, they did collect her and they did help her. 
And they did show up for her. And whether or not Eve chooses to accept that love or to, to move back into the, the safety and the comfort of the community and the belonging of the people of God, that's her choice. We can't force that. That's something I have to learn to understand and surrender to. But, but, but for my friends not to stop. Not to be the ones to say again to my daughter, whom I love with all my heart, who I would give my life for if I could. To say, we, don't, we have more important things to do. We, we have places to go. And of course, they could not really actually claim to be my friends if they would not stop for my daughter. We are supposed to be the friends of God. We are the friends of God. So there is, there's no human being in this city. There's not one person in this city which is not loved by God in that way. As a father loves their wayward children. And in one sense it is a cosmic thing and in another sense it is just that simple, actually. I took a walk yesterday and I walked around this, this square, the city center, just a little bit of it. And I just felt the weight of God as, I, as people passed me and walked by me. People who looked happy in many cases or distracted. Some people who looked distant. Some people who, who were laughing. Some people who were alone. And I just felt again that, that strong conviction. That each of them is Eve to God. Each of them in your neighborhood in your family, passing by your churches, in your homes, in your, in your sports clubs, and, and in your jobs, everywhere you go, there is not one who is not loved with that fierce love. Not one. And for the church to sit back and to say, well, maybe eventually we'll get around to that. Maybe, maybe we'll consider adding on mission as a program in our church. Maybe we'll have a couple of people in our church that care about mission and we'll, we'll get excited about them or we'll tell their story. No, no, that is, that, is, that is too small. That is too inadequate. It must be every single one of us committing the fullness of our lives to find those wayward children and bring them home. This is the mission of God. This is, this is, this is the heart of God to our hearts. Would you just take a minute, maybe close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm supposed to give you two minutes. What might God be saying to you in this moment? Perhaps for you it's a, it's a, a renewal of calling. Perhaps it's a prayer for greater hope. Maybe it's, maybe it's a person or a group of people that you're supposed, your heart is supposed to beat for again. To burn for. I'm just asking you to listen to the Holy Spirit speak just to you.